Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. I'm the Jude 3 Project founder and president, Lisa Fields. Um, Before we start, I have a special request. Um, The Jude 3 Project is growing um, and God is doing exceedingly and abundantly above all (laughs) that we could have asked for. Um, or even thought, um, I've never, I never thought God would be doing this much this soon. And I'm thankful and grateful, um, because it's his grace. Um, but we need your help to expand and grow, um, by your financial contributions and your prayers. We thank you for all those who pray. We thank you for all the encouraging emails and tweets and Facebook messages telling us how the Jew three project is helping you, helping your church helping you to understand and help helping you to be able to defend your faith. Um, and those are great testimonies because that gets at the mission and the purpose to helping people know what they believe and why they believe it and serving the African American community in the area of apologetics. I could not be more excited and more happy. And I'm expecting God to do even more great things through the G3 project. Um, we're asking if you could help us financially by going to www.g3project.com and hitting the donate tab at the top or clicking the donate banner. Um, we would be, we would greatly appreciate all your help. Anything you could do would be helpful. Now it's time for another great podcast episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa, the founder of the Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today we have a special guest who's no stranger to the G3 Project. He was just on a couple weeks ago, Dr. Joel Olowski. Welcome, Dr. Olowski. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, Dr. Olowski, part one um, went over so well. Um, so many people listen. I'm getting so much feedback. So thank you again for your um, contribution for part one on um, how Africa shaped the Christian mind. Um, And I know that at the end of our conversation, you were saying there is so much you could have added to um, part one. And we wanted to do a part two kind of to explore a little further on um, the early church fathers um, that happened to um, be in Africa. So um, Dr. Olowski, what would you add to our part one conversation concerning church fathers? Well, thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to talk again. And I'm uh, so glad that uh, people are interested in this topic. I think that it uh, really speaks, you know, so much to the contemporary world today. When you look back at ancient history, um, you know, last time we had talked a bit about some of the early church fathers, and mainly I think we had talked about those from the the second and third centuries. So we talked about, you know, Tertullian a little bit, um, you know, his uh, view on the Trinity and how we, in fact, even use his uh, 
his terminology to this day about the when we talk about the Trinity, the one uh, one substance and three persons of the Trinity, if you will. That that language actually comes out of Africa. I don't think people have you know really realized the fact that even in the West here, the very Trinitarian terminology that ended up defining how we talk about these things. Um, was from an African father, Tertullian. So I don't know if I had mentioned that last time, but I wanted to make sure you know we had <laughs> uh, talked about that. That's pretty important. Yeah, you you, um, you mentioned it. Um, oh, okay. When okay, you say um, that the language, as far as the Trinitarian language, what would be the? I don't want to kind of cut you off as far as that, but that was an interesting thought um, you brought up. How was it an African concept? Well, uh, an African concept, I guess, first of all, just because Tertullian, you know, lived here on the continent, uh, lived on the continent of Africa, but um, this idea of, of understanding how um, how uh, something can have a division within it, you know, um, one can be three. I mean, that's that's a pretty hard concept in any environment. And I will say, you know, in uh, a place like Alexandria, they were also trying to to figure this out. So, but, but the actual, I guess, you know, Tertullian's one of these guys who, um, having been a theologian in Africa, uh, he, he was one of really the earlier, earliest shapers of the, um, a lot of the language that we use theologically. So I, I don't know if I can say African in the sense of cultural or, or societal so much as, um, just the, the fact of the, of the genius, the intellect, that developed here on, on the continent of Africa. So um, I don't, you know, I don't know if I can make that kind of cultural, uh, sociological connection so much as as more just the the very person himself. Um, gotcha. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, I yeah. Got so it. <laughs> you know, he and he's, uh, but there, but there is one aspect that I'm going to get to in a little bit about what I think is a uniquely African contribution to theology, um, and that that kind of comes in the fourth century with Athanasius, but. Um, I was going to say we had highlighted, you know, Tertullian, Cyprian with his martyrdom and his willingness to even die for his faith. We talked about Origen and the patterns that he set for the whole uh, interpretation of Scripture. And I mean, there's just a huge amount we could say with him. He's probably the most influential of any of the African fathers um, and his uh, predecessor, Clement. So we did talk about those, but we didn't talk about those in the fourth and fifth century all that much. I think I might have just mentioned them really quick. And that's why I say somebody like Athanasius is is a is a key uh, figure um, in the Trinitarian discussions because uh, he kind of uh, takes the if you want to, if you will um, he takes the theology of a notch higher uh, in his kind of working out in con- con- in confrontation if you will with Arius just what do we believe about God and his uh, interaction with human beings and can there even be any interaction with human beings. And Arius said, uh, no, you know, that really God is up there and we're down here. And and when Athanasius wrote this wonderful uh, treatise called On the Incarnation, it really opened a window to seeing how God does indeed interact with his creation. And also the fact that the Son uh, cannot be considered anything less than the Father is. Because mm-hmm. if he is, then, you know, and we talked about that, I think, a bit too, didn't we, that, you know, if there's any subordination there, then um, really our whole salvation is called into question. Um, but Athanasius also had more to say about the Holy Spirit, and I guess that's where I was going to try to kind of take things a little bit. Uh, he wrote these uh, four letters uh, to Serapion, a uh, bishop who had, uh, they were talking about the Holy Spirit and just who is he. Um, 
And uh, there were many who were saying the Holy Spirit is just kind of this power or effluence that flows out from the Father, but not much more than that. And we we learned from the African Father Athanasius just really what, what to understand about the Holy Spirit, both in his relationship to the Father and the Son, but then also, uh, you know, what the Spirit even has to say for our lives today. And that's what I really uh, appreciate about Athanasius. And, and that's something that many of the church fathers in Africa did. Um, because they were very much engaged in, in the whole battle of spiritual warfare. And that's something, you know, if I had to say unique contribution that African Christianity, early African Christianity has to offer today, I, I would say it's in the area of Christian spirituality. Uh, mm-hmm. So can we uh, pursue that a bit? Or Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm thinking of somebody like, like Cyprian. I mean, I mentioned him before, but he's just got this wonderful quote that he says in his book on mortality, which really resonates today um, with uh, how we have spiritual warfare. But let me, let me just put it to you this way, that the early African fathers believed there was a spiritual world out there, and they believed in, that the spiritual beings existed uh, and that we had to contend with them. You know, a lot of our Western culture today kind of dismisses this and thinks it's superstitious. Um, but my time I've spent in Africa, I've realized that many of my African brothers and sisters are still living in this world. And it's it's not a world that's made up. I mean, it's, an, it's a real world where there are indeed demons and there are, um, you know, the, it's almost as if uh, there's spiritual warfare going on today. Mm-hmm. And so... To listen to somebody like Cyprian, I mean, listen to what he has to say here about spiritual warfare. Uh, he says, our warfare is with, with greed, with immodesty, with anger, with ambition. Our trying and toilsome wrestling with carnal vices, with the enticements of the world. The mind of humanity is besieged and on every hand infested with the onslaught of the devil, and it can scarcely meet the repeated attacks, it can scarcely resist them. If greed is humbled, lust brings up. If lust is overcome, ambition takes its place. If ambition is despised, anger exasperates, pride puffs up, drunkenness entices. I mean, he keeps going on and on there about this, all these persecutions of the soul that we suffer daily mm-hmm. and with so many risks of the heart, you know. And he's saying that Christ is the answer to that and the Spirit is a much stronger, I mean, the Holy Spirit, these spirits are no match for, for any of this spiritual warfare. And and Athanasius will do the same thing in his discussions with uh, with uh, the monks really out in the desert there and the spiritual warfare that they're undergoing. So I, I just find you know this whole aspect of African spirituality, understanding the reality of the spiritual world, but also that you know God has triumphed over this this spiritual world. Uh, that's something that you can read in the writings all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. So, um, so that's one aspect anyway. Um, you know, as we think of some of the other early church fathers from the 4th and 5th century, um, uh, I think, well, I've mentioned Athanasius. Uh, we didn't really talk much about uh, Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, have you ever heard of him before? Um, I, I think I've touched on him a little bit in church history, but it's very, uh, it's very vague. That was a couple years ago. Well, yeah. I I always wonder how much my students remember, you know. uh, (laughs) uh, Cyril of Alexandria is somebody who not many people know much about, and we're we're starting to translate more of his works so we can have them available, you know. But um, Cyril was one of those, again, an African father in Alexandria 
who uh, discussed the doctrine of Christ. And, you know, sometimes when we, we think in terms of doctrine, we think it's kind of this dry, uh, you know, a lifeless kind of thing that really has no import for a person's daily life. But mm-hmm. if if you don't understand who Christ is and how he can, for instance, this whole question I get af- asked a lot in Bible study is how could Jesus be God and, and also a human being? I mean, human beings, you know, they're they're totally different than God is, so how could he be both of those? Mm-hmm. Well, Cyril of Alexandria is one of those who works out this whole thing in his kind of debate with a guy named Nestorius. Uh, Nestorius was, um, he's not an Alexandrian or African father, he lived up in Constantinople. But um, he uh, he had this idea, for instance, there's a question that was being asked in the Church of the Day, is is Mary the mother of God? And that can be a pretty inflammatory question in one sense, because it makes it sound like Mary's almost a quasi-deity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't why they asked the question. The, the real question that comes up with whether Jesus is fully human, fully divine, is, you know, is your, who, who died for you on the cross? And, and you've you got to be able to answer that. And what Nestorius would do is he'd separate out, you'd have a human Jesus kind of and a divine Jesus, if you will. I'm kind of simplifying a little bit. but uh, And he would say the human Jesus died for you on the cross. And then one of the questions he'd have to ask is, well, was that then enough if he was just human? And, and Nestorius would say, well, he was united with the divine and these kinds of things. But what Cyril understood I mean, to kind of cut to the chase here, is that it had to be only one person who was both human and divine who died for us on the cross, and that person was the the person, Jesus Christ, who's both God and man. Mm-hmm. And so this whole debate in the in the early 5th century uh, ended up, you know, causing a huge turmoil in the church. But it was it was decided, and, and Cyril, uh, Cyril's position was ultimately accepted, that there's only one subject, not two, uh, when we talk about who Christ is. Um, and that becomes very important then for understanding, you know, your salvation, as far as that goes. Uh, does that make sense? Or yeah, I know that that's kind of pretty in depth there a little bit, but yeah, I think that's helpful because that's that's one of the um, common questions as far as who is Jesus and his, you know, the whole hypostatic union, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, him being fully God, fully man that concept of God, you know, wrapping himself in human flesh and some people having a very, uh, low Christology or high Christology. Um, so people go and fluctuate, um, with extremes. And I think that the question of who Christ is, is one of the most crucial questions we have to answer as apologists in, in this day. I would agree, and I, I would say, so you can really go to the African Fathers uh, to learn about this. I mean, you can read uh, either Athanasius or Cyril, and they're just, um, it's a wealth of information there. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book, I mean, this is Tom Oden's book, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. I mean, he really brought all these, all this to, uh, you know, our, our attention, and he's the one who uh, really worked out these this idea, uh, he, he said there were seven ways that Africa shaped the Christian mind, uh, and I don't think I had mentioned those last time. 
Um, just and, and notice that what he really wanted to emphasize is there's an intellectual tradition as well as a spiritual tradition in Africa that uh, Africans need to celebrate, and not just Africans, but the church needs to celebrate. And I think that, again, one of those things that's often ignored is these seven ways that Africa shaped the Christian mind, uh, one of them being even the very birth of the the university uh, was really anticipated in Africa with the uh, the Alexandrian uh, school of thought and the Alexandrian school of theology, if you will, that was there in Africa and North Africa. So that's one way. Um, the second way I, I had mentioned last time about Origen and his uh, his interpretation of Scripture that really set the pattern, you know, for uh, interpretation of Scripture for uh, centuries, millennia, if you will. Um, Thirdly, how Africa really shaped so many areas of Christian uh, thought, Christian dogma, Christian doctrine. I just mentioned a couple for you just before, you know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the, of the Holy Spirit, uh, the doctrine of Christ. I mean, not that these weren't talked about elsewhere, and I want to get, get some that wrong impression, but that really much of the uh, theology behind it was worked out on the continent of Africa with these theologians. Um, the ecumenical decisions, we did talk about those last time as number four, you know, the uh, conciliar tradition being worked out. Um, the whole thing of spiritual formation, a, six, a fifth area, uh, the monastic discipline. Uh, and even uh, number six on the, the philosophical level, we have uh, Neoplatonic philosophy being uh, kind of worked out in Alexandria, and that ends up forming foundational aspects of much of theology that takes place uh, in the larger world. And then finally, um, one thing we didn't really talk about much at all is just the whole rhetorical skill and ability that was uh, refined in Africa. And then, um, you know, m many of the African rhetoricians, the guys who could, you know, really speak and uh, public speaking was their strength, um, they were recognized throughout the empire. So you get somebody like Lactantius, uh, he's a fourth century African church father who was actually invited to go up into Constantine's court and teach his son. You know, um, you've got somebody like Augustine who's invited to Italy. We talked a little bit about that last time, how he was invited there because of his rhetorical skill. So these seven ways are just, you know, initial kind of thoughts here as to how Africa kind of has shaped the, the Christian mind that we're still benefiting from today. And I, I guess what Tom Oden would say is, you know, there's probably other ways and maybe even some of our listeners, you know, can think of ways that perhaps they could pursue in their own studies. So um, I thought that was something I hadn't really talked much about last time that I wanted to bring up with you. That's definitely helpful. And, and I didn't know any of it. <laughs> hmm, okay. Right. Um, I, I knew some things about, as far as, you know, the, the big, church fathers you mentioned that we always mentioned Tertullian, um, Athanasius. Um, but as far as those other, um, fourth and fifth century, um, church fathers, I had, you know, no, no real clue. Uh, I didn't spend enough time studying that. Um, so well, you, I think, you know, a lot of people are that way though. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say you're, you're an exception there. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and a lot of these guys, you know, there's, for instance, there's uh, Jerome wrote this book. He called it On the Lives of Illustrious Men. So who are the key uh, Africans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, or who are the, just the key, let's not say Africans, let's say the key theologians, key, key people in the early church. And I was so surprised to find, you know, there were at least over 50 names there in his collection 
of Africans. I mean, he has listed a lot more than that, but uh, but there were 50 Africans that he listed. People like Optitus of Miletus, who you probably never heard of, but uh, you know, he um, he argued very much about the doctrine of the church. Or uh, Tychonius, he he wrote one of the very first rules for how to interpret the scriptures. I mean, I mentioned Origen before, but Tychonius actually wrote this down as a, as interpretive rules. And of course, Lactantius uh, and others. So, yeah. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to realize that there's a lot more names out there to become familiar with, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a rich history. Mm-hmm. And maybe your audience might be wondering, you know, what were the the color of these uh, these these theologians, these church fathers? I mean, they had, I think I said last time they had all different shades of of color, if you will. But even somebody like Quad Volteus, I mean, what a name! But uh, if you look at icons of him, uh, he, he appears as a, as a, a very dark-skinned uh, church father. So uh, he was Bishop of Carthage, and uh, he wrote a series of homilies on the, on the creed that are still available to this day to, to learn about. Uh, Abba Moses the Black, you know, we mentioned him, I think, last time. Uh, just a fascinating figure. So... Um, I guess that's what I really wanted to do is say there's there's so much more out there that you can learn about. And a lot of this is on our website, too. So mm-hmm. uh, you can find these things there, too. And that's um, earlyafricanchristianity.com. So if you haven't that's heard right. the first one, if you didn't hear the first episode and you're just hearing two, we encourage you to go and listen to part one. But also go to earlyafricanchristianity.com. Um, and I know you wanted to, before we started, you said you wanted to touch a little bit on um, mona- the monastics. Um, yeah, the monastic tradition, because um, both, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of hermits, you know, monks who would go out into the desert and be on their own. I mm-hmm. mean, that came out in Africa, but also kind of these communal, uh, the community of, of, of uh, monks who would get together and live together. Now that also developed under Pacomius. So you got Anthony and Pacomius both as uh, key African leaders uh, in the monastic movement. Um, but again, it's it's that idea of uh, African spirituality that really comes through as well too, and and how how to deal with uh, temptation, how to deal with just the issues of life. I love to read the African fathers, especially those desert fathers. Uh, and what they have to say, because um, they really give you a lot of ammunition, if you will, <laughs> in your own spiritual battles as far as that goes. And they, and they do it through stories, which is what I like. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, maybe I could I share a story with you? Or, yeah. I would you know, love to hear um, Like this is from uh, Abba Anthony. Uh, he says, a hunter happened to come through the brush and saw Abba Anthony talking gladly with the brothers and was displeased. The old man wanted to show the hunter how we should sometimes be less austere for the sake of the brothers and said to him, put an arrow in your bow and draw it. He did so. And he said, draw it further. And he drew it. He said again, draw it yet further. And he drew it. The hunter said to him, if I draw it too far, the bow will snap. Abba Anthony answered, so it is with God's work. If we go to excess, the brothers quickly become exhausted. It is sometimes best not to be so rigid. You know, <laughs> just the idea of, of telling somebody, you know, you can be so rigid in your spirituality and everything else and put so many laws down that you might actually break a person down instead of building them up, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know if you knew this, but there were also African uh, church mothers out there, too, uh, especially in the desert. There was a, a woman named Syncletica, and uh, the, she had some sayings from the, the women in early uh, African history, too. Uh, so... 
she's included in the sayings as well. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know that. What, what are some yeah. others? Well, uh, there would be Abba Agatha. Let's see. Oh, you mean other women? Um, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, she's the main one I know, i got to be honest, but I'm sure there are others out there. But then she's the one who you read the most often, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and you can find her stuff in the sayings of the Desert Mothers. I think there's one book out there like that, too. Um, so, uh, well, let's see. Or when they talk about the demons, you know, the, uh, do not yield to the devil and guard your soul. Whenever the demon troubles you, come to your father, confessor, and rebuke the demon, and he will go away. And, and this is what I, I love this line. Nothing troubles the demon of lust more than disclosure of his pricks. Nothing pleases him more than the concealment of the temptation. In other words, when you try to hide things instead of confessing them to God, uh, that's when the devil can do the most damage in your life. Mm -hmm. But when you bring confession to him, you know, and confess your sins, he forgives them, and, the, and Satan's lost his power. You know? mm -hmm. These are the kinds of things that they bring up. And there's more of them, but anyway, that's some of them. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to have to definitely go. Um, and, and you said the it was a book about the... Yeah, things of the Desert Fathers. It, I actually have a lot of them in my book on the Holy Spirit, too. I'm not trying to plug here. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I simply just recorded a, a lot of these um, in um, a book I wrote with InterVarsity Press on um, We Believe in the Holy Spirit. That's part of a, a five-volume series. And I've got a collection of what they uh, say uh, in that book. But you can uh, there's actually sayings of the Desert Fathers, too, that you can go to. Mm -hmm. And you said there were uh -huh. sayings of the Desert Mothers. Is it a separate yeah. book? Okay. And I mean, I guess I didn't read the one that she has. Uh, you know, it's it's actually pretty good. Um, she talks about, you know, in terms of dealing with spiritual warfare in terms of, of medicine and cures, you know, um, and looking for what are what are cures to what ails you. And that's where you go to scripture, you know, and, and um, we should realize that there's so much there that God has provided in his scriptures. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think that's awesome, well, and we—it's such a rich, it's such a rich history that um, that you kind of bring it to the forefront. So I thank you for all your work because this is amazing. Well, it's it's all part of a team. Like I said, Tom Odin really is the one who's the, the brainchild of all this, and Mike Lerup, um, you know, working with the Center for Early African Christianity there as it moves up to Yale. Uh, you know, it's so it's wonderful to work with all these guys, but also working with our African brothers and sisters too. And I'm learning so much from them. I, I'm going over to Ethiopia in May to uh, teach again on Christology, but I'm also looking forward to learning from them too. Mm -hmm. so. That's amazing. We had some questions to come in. Um, and one of the questions um, for you was, uh, why has Western Christianity been less accepting of African centric theology and culture? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, I, I want to avoid being any any culture-centered Christianity, you know, whether it's African, whether it's European, whether it's Chinese or whatever. I mean, that was one of the things Optimus of Milevis, for instance, said, is that we're part of a an ecumenical, if you will, worldwide Christianity. And, and um, but, but, but I think what you're... Uh, your writer there is is identifying is is kind of Africa has been downplayed and and um, even demeaned in some books. I've I've read comments that I'm just cringe when I see what they said about African theologians, and I think a lot of it has to do with ignorance, you know. And 
and not really even knowing where a lot of these church fathers, for instance, lived. Uh, you know, a lot of times people, I think, think Augustine lived in, in Italy, you know, and just got kind of trans, he's, he's trans, a transplanted uh, Italian into Africa or something. But, <laughs> you know, uh, once you start to learn really where these guys lived, and, and there are currently studies being done to kind of look at the social, cultural side of things, too. And so looking at somebody like Tertullian and seeing some very African characteristics in his writing. Um, I think that, so to answer your, your uh, caller's question, I, I think uh, I would simply say it's, it's probably a lot of just ignorance, you know, and, and not, not knowing the real history behind what's, what's happened in the church. And some of it probably is also racial bias, too, for that mm-hmm. matter. And that's one of the things we have to overcome with the facts, I guess, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, you can't argue with facts. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. So, um um another question we have is how did the images and or the imagery of the early church fathers evolved evolve oh the like the imagery of icons and things like that mm-hmm. and how well, we view and how we view them in our minds today cuz it seems oh okay did did the question make sense to you i'm sorry well no i, I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit um I'm not sure what they're ask, they're trying to ask, but I think it's just um, kind of like when I think of the what I think of when I think of this question is when you see like images of church fathers, there seems mm-hmm. to be kind of this whitewashing of church fathers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's my, that might be how they're maybe presenting it. But I know that as far as art goes, people kind of artists have their own interpretation. So it could lend itself to the artists being themselves um, Mm -hmm. painting the people as they see themselves versus as they were. And which is what often happened in art is, you know, you'll, you'll see depictions of like the battle of Troy, you know, with 16th century costumes for instance, or (laughs) something like that. So there is that kind of thing that goes on. And so Augustine will look like a very Northern European with a long beard, you know, and a miter and all this stuff. So the fact is nobody knows what they looked like because uh, for the most part, the iconography developed later, you know, and so, uh, um, but, but you will get consistent iconography, for instance, on some of these church fathers like Augustine or like uh, Chrysostom or Gregory of Nyssa, and uh, a lot of this developed in the Eastern Church, um, and so there there became a whole kind of school of thought of how you would render these uh, these depictions, and most of them are in the forms of icons because they uh, viewed these fathers as also saints, um, and so there was a, a certain reverence that was attached to them. But um, you will see, uh, like I said, somebody like Claude Voldeus or uh, Abba Moses uh, from very early on having a, a very dark appearance and even somebody I mean Athanasius is one of those where you'll see him depicted a number of different ways um, but this idea of dark skinned I mean that's one of the the ways they tried to slander him you know talking about him being a dwarf and dark dwarf and all this um, so I, I guess you know it, it is somewhat as you said you know beholden on the person who's actually doing the art um, but you can also look at uh, I don't know there's there's some funerary art you know art that's uh, in the tombs and the catacombs and things like that that can also give us kind of an idea of what of how some may look and um, you will actually see um, 
dark figures as well as light figures in some of the um, Egyptian art. That's what I find interesting as well. So you get the Nubian kind of influence that's there. Um, and then, you know, there's there's the symbol, symbol, symbolism and imagery that goes along with uh, a lot of the uh, catacombs and things like that. And I mentioned the uh, funerary stuff before, that that gets developed actually very early on, but it doesn't give us an idea of what people looked like. It was more kind of the symbols, if you will, that they would use like a shepherd or a sheep. Um, there's actually um, that book I mentioned, uh, Christianity in Roman Africa, actually has some very good pictures in it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, this is going to sound like a shameless plug again, but we, our Institute for Classical Christian Studies actually came out with an atlas of early Christianity that has two chapters on Africa in it, and it contains not only maps, but also a lot of pictures in it. So if people wanted to see, you know, what, what ancient church buildings and things looked like at the time, you know, they, they could actually go to that atlas and uh, see a lot of those pictures. Uh, too. So maybe that's a longer answer than your uh, your writer expected, but um, I guess part <laughs> of it is we just don't know, um, but the other part of it is there was a indeed a, a, a way that they followed, a certain t- technique that they did follow pretty early. What is the cultural landscape um, as far as Christianity in Africa today? Uh, today, uh, it's it's really varied, I, and I have to say that right up front, because when we talk about African Christianity, one of the th- early things we were told was, you know, you can't just have one African Christianity. I mean, there's the cultures are so wonderful and varied, uh, say, like in Tunisia versus Morocco versus uh, Egypt versus uh, Sudan, uh, Nigeria. But but what I my reply was well that is actually African Christianity because uh, it gives a wonderful mosaic of of Christianity that it's not just one cultural expression but it's it's many different cultures and expressions and you can get the deep piety of let's say the monastic tradition that you'll see in Ethiopia and Egypt and put that right alongside um, you know the vibrant kind of expression of Christianity you'll see in Nigeria or in uh, Somalia or in Sudan you know. Uh, and so I love the cultural landscape of Africa because it's so varied and it reflects kind of the revelation picture, you know, of the church when you have every language, uh, tongue and all of that represented in heaven, not just one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't know if that helps, but that's, that's at least how I see it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And that's helpful. Um, what would be your last words that you want to leave with our listeners? Well, uh, probably like what I said last time in the sense of, first of all, I, I, we, we don't say thank you enough, you know, to our African brothers and sisters who contended for the faith so long ago, but who are still contending for that faith today. And that I would call our listeners to uh, remember the African church in prayer, but not just see it as the African church, but that it's part of the, the global church, if you will. And uh, we need the African church just as much as they need us. And so let us rejoice in all the gifts that God has given to his church. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Lasky. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com 
um, backslash Jude three project. And remember you can donate on our site. So if this, um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you, help support us financially, um, by going on our website at Jude three project.com and hitting the donate tab, um, and donating, consider donating to us. Thank you so much. Remember at the Jude three project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.